Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, explore human creativity and invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, a vital ingredient in the solutions to all of our problems, so often misunderstood. Little by little, I'm building an archive of valuable stories, experiences, and tips to help you maximize yours. The show is supported by founding sponsor and B Corp, Illustration X. Take a look at their stunning range of illustrators and animators now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, it's by Dirty Freud, who you can listen to on Spotify and all good music streaming services. Today, following Creative Stories number one, Cheeky Batman, a slightly sideways episode exploring the world around me and seemingly random thoughts through the lens of the creative brain, and back with Schrodinger Simon. Hello and welcome to the show. How are you doing? How do I find you this week? Welcome. If you're new to the show, welcome back to regular listeners. I really do appreciate you. The numbers have been creeping up. I've been contacting more people to tell them the show exists a really basic oversight on my part for the last seven years but aren't we all the stereotypical artist to some degree (laughs) all making and no marketing makes for a alarming bank account there's something in that surely Thank you to the founding supporter of the show as ever, Illustration X. Check out their global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. Long-term representative of my own, and they're doing a lot of great work for the creative industry. I hope you're well this week. It's as crazy as it ever is out there. I try not to be as exposed to those 24-7 news cycles as I once was, because as I've mentioned many times on this show, I've had some dips in the midst of twin parenthood fatigue leaving me rather vulnerable i have a very sensitive brain and that's why i wanted to drop this slightly lateral let's go with lateral episode of the podcast on you today creative stories number two so for those of you that are regular listeners to the show you'll remember creative stories number one cheeky batman cheeky batman was sadly mark append over not too long after I did the show, to the point where it made me think, do I have a vengeful local listener (laughs) who's gone out of their way to destroy a lovely little bit of graffiti that used to bring magic to the lives of my children? And in that episode, I explored um, seeing your world through different eyes and being prepared to see magic in even the dullest of surrounds because I think it's something that's really important. And having grown up, in a bit of a mill town, a bit of a post-industrial mill town. It could be really grey, and it could be pessimistic, and it could be a little bit bleak at times. So I wanted to teach my children something that has become incredibly valuable to me, particularly in the creative industry, which is the ability to transform with our imaginations the world around us and see magic in it and see possibility and see so many layers because they're all there. There are as many as you want to see. That it, it gives you belonging, even if you live in something you consider a complete shithole. I think that's really um, critical. The last episode with Chris Pirate, episode 2000, imagine, 211, hit upon this. 
in terms of Washington DC, which is where Chris is from and where he's returned to. Um, and seeing it through the eyes of an artist, particularly growing up as a child and wanting to redesign almost the place that he lived. And I'm speaking literally the kind of the flats where he lived. I thought that was really beautiful, the way he would draw it and redesign it as a kid. There's something really spectacular in that, you know, about re-envisioning that world. And, and that's what I wanted to do with Cheeky Batman. And in a sense, there's a little bit of that carried over into this episode today, which I'm calling Simon Schrodinger, which will become semi-apparent why in a moment. But, well, okay, let's get into it. I'm going to take you on a stormy voyage today through a, a stormy voyage through a highly sensitive mind. It's an overthinking odyssey. And I know for sure that some of you are going to really um, relate to this. So, Simon Schrodinger is a train of thought which arose from encountering a missing cat poster, which delivered the unwelcome news that a local friendly feline acquaintance, Simon, great name by the way, was officially missing. And I felt like it was worth sharing because as a highly sensitive person, prone to overthinking, like I said, I'm, I know I'm far from being an outlier among the people, in particularly the creative industry, because it makes us good at our job, doesn't it? We're highly attuned to our environments. We feel things, sometimes more than less sensitive people. We feel the highs and we feel the lows. And it can make us kind of emotional wrecks at times, and certainly me, and that's what this is about today. It might resonate with you. Maybe I'll get a raft of concerned emails checking on my state of mind. You might be justified. <laughs> or, and this is entirely likely, might be that I've simply resorted to talking utter bollocks. Either way, let's set the scene with a thought experiment to do with quantum theory. So, Schrodinger's cat is something I had never heard of for a long time. And it kind of blew my mind when I read it, even though I didn't truly understand it. Maybe I didn't understand it at all. But the following is a simplified description from The New Scientist. Devised in 1935 by the Austrian physicist Erwin Schrödinger, this thought experiment was designed to shine a spotlight on the difficulty with interpreting quantum theory. Quantum theory is very strange. It says that an object like a particle or an atom that adheres to quantum rules doesn't have a reality that can be pinned down until it is measured. Until then, its properties, such as momentum, are encoded in a mathematical object known as a wave function that essentially says, if you make a measurement, here are a range of possible outcomes. The inevitable question that arose as the theory developed was, what, then, is the thing doing before that? <laughs> I know. The most prominent answer in the 1930s came from the Copenhagen interpretation, developed in a Danish city by luminaries of quantum theory, Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg. This says that there really is no definitive reality before the measurement, and the object is in an undefined state, state known as superposition. Schrodinger's thought experiment probed how this plays out when a quantum object is coupled to something more familiar. He imagined a box containing a radioactive atom, a vial of poison and a cat. Governed by quantum rules, the radioactive atom can either decay or not at any given moment. There's no telling when the moment will come, but when it does decay, it breaks the vial, releases the poison and kills the cat. If 
Copenhagen interpretation is correct, then before any measurement has occurred, the atom, and so also the cat, are in a superposition of being decayed slash dead and not decayed slash alive. <laughs> the absurdity of speaking of a simultaneously living and dead moggy was supposed to show that the Copenhagen interpretation must be lacking something. The experiment played an important part in spurring other ways of thinking about quantum theory, including the many worlds interpretation, which says that the different possible realities of a quantum object crystallise into different parallel universes at the point of measurement. That's the end of the piece. I'll be honest, this doesn't clarify anything at all in my limited little brain. But Simon, the friendly cat from a few doors down, is either missing or was missing. I don't know. I would like to know, but I know it's not better to know. <laughs> and this liminal space feels like it isn't entirely divorced from Schrodinger's cat and all that stuff. Anyway, the posters went up. I told my wife, you know that black and white cat, the one that rolls about on the pavement and sometimes follows us for a bit? You do know. One that the kids like to stroke. And she said, oh yeah, I think I know now. Oh, that's so sad. And the kids never miss much. But mum, mum, daddy, what? Daddy, you said cat, which cat? So they've just turned four and they've already landed the big after death question on us. And despite all kinds of planned curiosity quenching, non-scarring answers, we just vomited a bucket's worth of politician bile. And now they have to try to choke down the notion of a vanishing pet before they can wipe their own asses. I can't tell them he might have been run over, can I? They're four. And I certainly can't float the idea of theft. We've got a dog after all, can you imagine? So, I go with a big misadventure. This does happen. We used to have a cat called Abby. We didn't name her. It was Abby, the tabby. And she was actually a tortoiseshell. <laughs> when I was about 13. And she got her head stuck in uh, an empty cat food tin. And her body in the neighbour's shed for about four days with just enough room to breathe and survive. So I tell them this story and I, I slap on two coats of Disney. And when they move on to other topics, I can tell they haven't really moved on because their trains of thought are punctured by Simon. His claws, his brazen eyes, his ghost. As it stands right now, at the time of speaking to you guys about a missing cat from a few doors down, I think I might have seen him. And he felt really good because with enough conviction to buy into the happy ending. I did see him, but I didn't, not conclusively anyway. I'm reasonably sure it was him, except I don't know if he goes that far, because I don't really know him, and I don't know his owners. Either way, I walked into town with a head full of warmth, cloaked in this toasty, gorgeous, golden, heroic return to the back of the sofa, watching out of the window. The posters came down, that was profound to me, don't you think? Philosopher shit. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. There's something so final about the act of pulling down those plastic pockets, which were taped up with hopeless, yet hopeful fingers, so stiff with heightened emotions. Like I said, I don't know his owners, and I'm certainly not knocking on to find out if he's back, dominating the fireside, or frozen in time, in a frame, above it. Which brings us back to Schrodinger and the sensitive mind. So I can handle the worst, because it's happened to me many times. All those childhood pets, 
frisking on the street one minute, gone the next. Symbolic of the transient nature of our existence. Sometimes they just leave the case open, the people who lose cats, and those posters fade until there's only an eye or a distressed line of type that the sun will eat by springtime. But my willingness on any given day to Disney myself sick and slurp down every drop of the happy ending, or fall so fast into the thrashing ocean of this monumental private tragedy, changes on any given day. And that's why I'm telling you this, I think, <laughs> because it drives me close to madness. You just never know with empathy. It's a blessing, curse, blessing, curse. Two Cerberus heads trying to eat the one in the middle. The one I sometimes wish I could move into permanently. Cerberus, that Greek myth dog who guards the gates of hell. It doesn't always have three heads. Did you know that? I found out it can be more. Some days it certainly feels like that's the case for me. Anyway, next time the kids bring up Simon, I feed this theoretical triumphant homecoming to them. And they look delighted, if unable to grasp either his vanishing or this notion of He's back, as you were. My son says, Daddy, why is Simon missing? And the quizzical look on his face makes me take a moment to process the gravity of whatever's going on in his little head. So I tell him about cat curiosity and why it's a good thing and has to happen, even if there are dangers. To me, on a good day, everything out there feels resolvable in the kind of, there's always been horrors, there always will be, and we have to get on with it sort of way. There are days when the big ideas and the breakthroughs come, when I'll speculate and I'll take a long shot, believing it might just nestle in the top corner and send the crowd into rapture. And that's when Simon, whether he exists in Schrodinger's box or by the hypothetical fireplace, I dared not actually look in their window, just like I couldn't open Schrodinger's box, um, or not, is playing a part in something bigger, and that's fine. And then there are the tired days, the mornings when even getting the peanut butter out of the cupboard feels like an impossibly heavy slab of responsibility, when the joy of an introspective mind is just fucking colossal weight around my neck, around the neck of my soul, and we don't get to see the sun, when the rain is trying to get through my roof and my windows, specifically mine, targeting me, and soon the seas will rise and the heavens will open and the sky will fall and it's going to crush that unbearably barren piece of pavement outside their house and his wildly flicking tail and... They say that with the climate there might be food scarcity soon so why are people getting angry about unfortunate people on small boats and why doesn't it stop in Gaza or Ukraine and how many of the weapons that fall have been flogged by the crooks running the show on this little island? And what dystopian misery will Jeremy Vine ambush me with at lunchtime if I forget to turn off the radio? And eventually, when I'm fully in the spiral, and I've convinced myself that there'll never be another illustration commission again, and we'll have a default on the mortgage. And nursery will definitely lose another one of the kids' hats. And I might, despite what the barber said about the safety promised by my thick hair, actually be slightly receding at the corners. And I just don't have any fucking time to write the fiction that's bursting out of my unconscious or to sack off my useless energy provider. It's then that I have to down tools and just run. Run at three quarter pace to get the kids on time. Barrel past the torn edges of the missing Simon posters. Missing now from the lampposts. 
And on the walk home from the nursery, I might feel scatterbrained. Or maybe I'll be lucid and lively, ready to talk about Simon, about what happens when we die, about what the kids had for lunch today, who they played with, about where they last saw the hat. And really, when it comes right down to it, he might just be there, rolling around when we turn the corner, on the pavement, without a care in his little world. And really, despite the noise, I like the colour this naughty child of an organ in my head lends my life. I'm trying to teach it things, and with each new cognitive trick it learns, my life gets a bit easier on the days when Simon is definitely fly food on the A36. But I don't want it to be too good, because if I can't be the right amount of naughty, like the block on the dog walks kid, he told me came home hungry with a full untouched packed lunch because there was a regimented way that the private school said she had to eat it and she just couldn't start with the carrot sticks even though it was the law <laughs> then you might as well just hand it to him now plus tax plus interest and then where's the chance where's the possibility and the exhilarating unknown but then that's just me and i'm probably overthinking it and i can't honestly even remember why i started telling you this in the first place <laughs>